Before I read the scripture for this morning, uh, please bow your heads and pray with me. Lord, we thank you for this opportunity to open your word together. We pray that we would do this expectantly, ready to receive what you have for us, and ready to be challenged in our own lives in our, and in our corporate life as the body of Christ here in the Farmington Valley. In Jesus' name, amen. This morning's reading comes from Galatians 4, verses 1 to 11, and the words are on the screen behind me. I mean that the heir, as long as he is a child, is no different from a slave, though he is the owner of everything. But he is under guardians and managers until the date set by his father. In the same way, we also, when we were children, were enslaved to the elementary principles of the world. But when the fullness of time had come, God sent forth his son, born of woman, born under the law, to redeem those who were under the law, so that we might receive adoption as sons. And because you are sons, God has sent the spirit of his son into our hearts, crying, Abba, Father. So you are no longer a slave, but a son, and if a son, then an heir through God. Formerly, when you did not know God, you were enslaved to those that by nature are not gods. But now that you have come to know God, or rather to be known by God, how can you turn back again to the weak and worthless elementary principles of the world, whose slaves you want to be once more? You observe days and months and seasons and years. I am afraid I may have labored over you in vain. This is the word of the Lord. Praise be to Christ. I am humbled and excited and encouraged. Uh, to preach this morning. This is one of the more beautiful descriptions of what we receive in trusting Christ, the gift, beloved heirs and children of God. We receive this text, though, as uh, one of the not-so-great letters of the New Testament. Last year, uh, we went through 1 Corinthians, which is uh, a letter we learn a lot about through some terrible circumstances. One of my friends preached it in uh, Florida, and he called it Keeping Up with the Corinthians, and they did an image like the Kardashians, because the Corinthian church was just a big mess. Um, and mostly, what Paul was upset about was sin. Shocking, right? But in the Galatian church, it's a very different concern having the same effect and the concern is about these bad teachers. But the con and, that, and that concern specifically, people like me get really excited and want to talk about it. I love the way that uh, those teachers were classified last week um, in the sermon. But you cannot separate the problem of the teaching from the effect, because Paul is equally livid about both. And if you think I'm exaggerating, take 15 minutes this week and read Galatians. And if you want, highlight all the times that he refers to the bad teachers and what they're teaching. 
It's a lot in six chapters. And he gets real aggressive with how destructive it is because what happens is when you teach something that doesn't represent Christ, it fractures community. It takes what is supposed to be a radically inclusive and loving group of people and it sets them against one another and destroys what is supposed to be salt and light to the world, what is supposed to be a beautiful expression of God in the world through his people. Paul expects that those who have received the gift in its incredible, disproportionate blessing, meaning the gift is so beautiful and incredible and the, worthy, the worthiness of the recipients, not very much. The incongruous gift of Christ turns God's people into an incredibly inclusively loving group of people. And so it's not only stop teaching this wrong thing, it's stop teaching this wrong thing because you're fracturing their community. You're creating envy, looking up. Judgment, looking down, Galatians 5.25. And that's not how it works in God's people, with God's people. In opposing this, Paul teaches them that we were enslaved to one of two things either to uh, a moralistic religion of ceremony or to the elements of the world. He says it twice. Why are you turning back to the elements? The minority opinion on that is he's talking about uh, demons. By worshiping something other than God, you end up worshiping what looks like some kind of pagan god. The majority opinion is he's talking about uh, earth, air, fire, and water what the ancients worshipped, right? Anybody see the sunrise this morning? I saw some of it. It's absolutely beautiful because of the way the earth has turned. I can see a little bit more and because leaves are falling and it's absolutely beautiful. But I didn't pray to it because it's a sun and I know who created it and it has no power to offer meaning or clarity about being a human, what and who to worship. So Paul likens twice that we're either slaves to a religion of ceremony and practice or to meaninglessness of our observation of the world and how it works. And he's pointing out that the way that, the way that we flee, this is all... <laughs> Paul actually corrects himself in chapter 4 which makes me feel so much less crazy when I have to say that wasn't the right way to say that. Paul's not only saying we were enslaved to those things, he's saying now there's a potential for us to flee the gift of Jesus through one of those two ways. There are two ways to flee the gift of Jesus, to nullify it using the, the uh, language of chapter 2 of Galatians. One is through religious practice that we expect to save us and or mature us. And the other is to turn back to the ways of the world. There are two ways to flee God, and one is to try to please God through all of our activity. That's not right. To obey God in such a way that we think we'll merit something. And the other way is to just live however we feel. And that sounds, 
I hope that sounds familiar to you. It might sound counterintuitive that religion can lead us away from God, but it's one of the most consistent and profound parts of Jesus' teaching and the New Testament teaching. And here, Paul talks not only about circumcision, but also talking about keeping the Sabbath and other liturgical days. And listen, I am as pro-Sabbath as any Christian pastor you will meet. I've read like 12 books on it. I think it's such a lovely gift of the Spirit, but you do not impose it on someone and say, you're not a full Christian until you keep the Sabbath. If I say that, I am misrepresenting Christ. I've now divided the room into those that are willing and able to keep the Sabbath and those that are not. And now we do not look like the people of God. In this, Paul's discussing indirectly because he's opposing certain teachers, the law, the Torah. And amongst Christians, since Jesus rose from the dead, this is one of the more intense medium discussions we have. What is the law? What's it for? What's it not for? What can it do? What can't it do? I was talking with someone after the first service about how fond Martin Luther was of the book of Galatians. After um, his change away from the Catholic Church, I think he spent a lot of time and energy learning the freedom of Christ that Paul teaches here. In this, Paul is saying that for a time, the law was a guardian. He uses the word pedagogue. A temporary teacher. Those of you that have children know that when they're little, a lot of the rules have to do with safety, right? One of our children used to run into the street, scared me to death. We had to discipline harshly because the danger was high, right? Paul's not saying that's what the law is. He's saying that's how the law functioned for a time. But now that people are over looking to it as um, savior and as mature from chapter three, that's wrong. And what they were teaching was that the Christ event actually brings the people of God back to the law of Moses. And Paul's saying, no, this is the event around which all of history demands to be understood. I know people who say they're followers of Christ and they think the resurrection doesn't matter, and I gotta be very clear with you. I do not understand how you can read this text and come to that conclusion. It blows my mind. And I've told them that, and they're like, huh? And I'm like, what do you mean, huh? The resurrection of Jesus Christ demands attention. And I have friends who are not followers of Christ, and they have wrestled with this question, and they do not believe he rose from the dead. And I respect that. It makes me sad. What I do not understand is reading this and not seeing in the fullness of time, very specific point in time, God did this, to reconcile his people. Not back to a theocracy, but into faith in Jesus and the abundant life that accompanies that. Or that the abundant life that is the gift of Jesus in us.
we were enslaved. And that slavery, uh, we were enslaved, and the, what we were enslaved to continues to tempt us to run from God. That's the painting, The Return of the Prodigal Son. In Luke chapter 15, we should call it the running father, the parable of the running father, the man with two sons, except there's another parable about a man with two sons, so we shouldn't call it that. Anyway, it is not about the danger of sin. As much as it is about, there are two ways to run from the gift of Jesus. One is, is sin and living however you feel, which is wildly destructive and dangerous and terrible. But there's more ink spilled about the judgmental, angry religious spirit that is a way of running from God. That's the older brother in the back looking on envious, not going to the party. Paul's alluding to this. Jesus taught it repeatedly, over and over, that receiving the gift of him is not through our religious activity. Religious activity has a beautiful function, which is to remind us what he did and to comfort us and encourage us. But it merits nothing. We were enslaved to those things, and then we were adopted Jesus does not bring us back to the law. Jesus did not come to abandon the law, but to fulfill it. That's what he says in Matthew. And fulfilling it means adopting in all those who know that they are orphans, who know that their need is for a father who loves them, for them to belong to. We know our need to belong. Most of us are nervous about it because we've been burned by it. When I was a freshman in high school, I uh, started playing. That wasn't the first time I played basketball, but I was playing. And I realized how much I wanted to belong to that team when I would leave the freshman practice, which ended at 4.30, and I'd go practice with the varsity team. I just decided to. I started getting into drills and things like that, and they didn't let me scrimmage with them because that would have just been terrible for everybody. But I could do the drills, and I would run the sprints with them. And we ran a free throw line back, half court back, the free throw line back, all the way down and back, 27 seconds. That's how long we had to do that. And I could actually do it at the time, but I didn't make the time. And I wasn't the only one, but I was the only one who was not invited to that practice who didn't make the time. And the whole team had to run again. A guy named Kendall King said to me, that cannot happen again. And it didn't, because I wanted to belong so much. I wanted the camaraderie. I enjoyed the sport. I wanted friendship. And that is, at best, a mediocre illustration of our need first to be reconciled to God, and then to have a community that is not marked by looking up at people and looking down at people, but looks across and sees that we're all made in the image of God, full of nobilities and blind spots, full of sin and virtue. And we actually grow 
in friendship with one another until Jesus returns or we go to be with him. Verses four and five give us a very multi-part picture of the gospel of Jesus. When the fullness of time had come, God sent forth his son, born of woman, born under the law, to redeem those who were under the law so that we might receive adoption as sons. We've talked about this a little bit. You've heard it mentioned indirectly through one of our ministries that we support. There are two words for time in Greek, kairos and chronos. And chronos is specific. And this is the word chronos. This was not an accident. This happened on purpose in history at a specific time. And we speculate a little bit because the scriptures don't tell us exactly why this was the fullness of time. But it seems pretty clear it had to do with the state of the nation of Israel and the state of the Roman Empire so that word could get out. But this is a blended concoction of history, spirituality, theology, and even psychology because a need is being indirectly stated, which is to receive the spirit that enables and allows us to call God Abba and brings us in to union with Christ, the most deep belonging available to us, and then into relationship with each other. If you call Jesus Lord, you belong to him and to this gathering. And that is supposed to, that, that speaks comfort and peace to your heart. And nothing else can speak to it as powerfully and as deeply. Why? Why does God redeem? To redeem those so that we might receive adoption. Why? This is so important. This is so important. That's who he is. You're a follower of Christ. You have been saved from eternal death into eternal life, from your sins into forgiveness, from a life marked with spiritual death into a life where you're generous and loving, and when you're not, you know what to do about it. You repent. Because that's who God is. We were enslaved and then adopted as heirs, and beloved children. And because you're sons, of course this applies to the women in the room. Paul's writing quickly and passionately and doxologically and expecting us to do the work of understanding that it applies to everyone that calls Jesus Lord. And because you are sons, God has sent the spirit of his son into our hearts, crying, Abba, Father. So you are no longer a slave, but a son. And if a son, then an heir through God. God sent his spirit to comfort and assure you that you belong to him. And that you're going to continue to grow and mature as his worshiper and follower. Because of the Holy Spirit, not through your moralism, not through ceremony. You're freed from that. 
And if it weren't for that, there'd be no way to set down our envy or our judgmentalism. But if it's true that the Spirit saves us and then the Spirit grows us up, then we don't look up to people or down in the, in the negative sense. You believe that you're beloved? Do you know it? Sometimes our deepest needs are the ones that we're so nervous about. I led a men's retreat many years ago, and uh, we did a lot of relaxing. We had pork steaks and chips for dinner. My wife's like, no vegetables? And I was like, didn't even cross my mind to buy vegetables. (laughs) It should have. Vegetables are important, but, well, now you know what kind of retreats I run. And uh, the next day, we spent five, ten minutes talking about these things, about our need for a father. And I said, I want you to go outside and ask God if he's proud of you. And a man came up to me, and he was about three inches from my face, and he said, I swore I would never ask anyone that again. And he didn't tell me why, and I just, I just stood there, <laughs> nervous, wanting to say words, but wanting to honor his story also. And then he went outside. And spent a few minutes receiving, not salvation, but receiving the truth that he is a beloved son. God is proud of him. And if you think beloved sounds mushy, that's fine with me. Maybe it is. Maybe you need some mush. (laughs) We were enslaved and then adopted as heirs and beloved children who remember. That's what we're doing this morning if you're a follower of Christ. We are remembering actively as a living argument who God is in a world that seems far from him, at least to me. We're praising him in song to remind our emotions who he is, that he loves us, has called us into purpose and life. 2020 feels like so long ago. I did a bike race in February 2020. feels like 10 years ago. And the first part, when we were doing online only for a few months, I hung up pictures of you all throughout this place next to the cameras. Because not having you in here... I was like, what, is, what are we doing? And the lie was, there's no meaning. And the gospel of Jesus says, no, there's purpose. And you are brought into that. At times, my... when I worry about my children. I go back to the gospel and it tells me about their purpose in the world as a God follower and I worry less and I'm able to shed the idea that the world would present to me about what my kids are supposed to look like and do and be and receive that as God's children loving him and loving neighbor is good in the world. And that's me rejecting the elementary principles of the world and receiving 
the gift of Christ. That's me rejecting a moralism and a ceremonialism that's going to want them to get in line and receiving the gift. What Tim Keller calls the living argument of the gospel to our doubts and to our fears and to our anxieties and to whoever and whatever is whispering, there's no meaning. And I love here that Paul says it one way and then corrects himself because it makes me feel less crazy and it reminds us that he's writing in a way that he's praising as he's writing. Formerly, when you did not know God, you were enslaved to those that by nature are not gods. But now that you have come to know God, or rather, to be known by God, how can you turn back again to the weak and worthless elementary principles of the world? whose slaves you want to be once more. You observe days and months and seasons and years. I am afraid I may have labored over you in vain. And Paul's not opposed to the Sabbath. If you read Colossians chapter 2, verses 16 and 17, he's like, practice the days how you see fit, but don't you dare impose them on another Christian and say you're not a full Christian until you do it this way. This kind of religious oppression and idolatry, which I think elementary, the elementary principles of the world is an, is an indirect allusion to idolatry, are the two chief warnings of the New Testament. Watch out that you're not going to things of the world and asking them to be God, and watch out that you're not so proud of your religious practices that you miss that this is a gift received, and then practiced. We were enslaved and then adopted as heirs and beloved children who remember. The idea of a uh, quiet time is a narrow way of remembering. It's not a bad way. It's not the only way. When you pray this week, that's an act of remembrance that gives comfort and energy to your heart and mind. When you read a little bit this week, that is an act of remembering the gift that you received that frees you into the world as his agent of love and peace and justice because you are beloved. are so thankful that in the fullness of time you sent your son to redeem. We believe in that. Help us to believe it more deeply. We trust in that. Help us to trust quickly. We receive it as a gift that eliminates jealousy and envy among us. Help us to live in that light. Father, we praise you that we can call you Father and rest in your care for us. Jesus, we thank you for what you did, redeem.
Holy Spirit, we praise you that you are in our hearts now, enabling and energizing and empowering us to call you Lord. Amen.